Hello, and welcome to episode four of A Musician and a Filmmaker. I forgot the name of the podcast for a second. <laughs> well, we didn't think we'd get this far, so that's why we're, uh, you know. Right. We're doubting our, the name of our, our cast even at this point. I was about to say, I think this is the so far the longest running podcast I've ever started, so that's already an accomplishment. <laughs> it's been a busy month, man. I've been I've been crunching big time to to finish this movie and I mean I'm sure we'll talk about it later but for everyone who doesn't know I'm Greg Phipps the filmmaker the titular filmmaker and with me is my co-host Jordan Randall that's me I'm the titular musician I suppose although we're both musicians right. well you're also a bit of a filmmaker but I guess if yeah, we're gonna there's, there's a bit of an overlap I'm a bit of a filmmaker. it's just because of the panda bear there's song that we stuck with it <laughs> It's especially prescient this month because Jordan has a new album out called A Collection of Thoughts, I Think. Mm -hmm. That, I think. That, I think. I was close. Uh, (laughs) And then I have a movie, a documentary that I've been working on for two years that just came out last week called An Elegant Weapon, The Story of Three in the Afternoon and Six in the Morning, which is a long title, but we can just call it An Elegant Weapon or The Doc is a lot easier. (laughs) yeah so this is going to be a different kind of episode we're actually going to have travis bowles who was the subject of my documentary on later to discuss the movie with us Uh, so that's exciting and we've got some other things in the works for next episode which is coming Mm -hmm. up very soon but first we'd be remiss if we didn't briefly talk about animal collective as we always do we must I guess we can go ahead and spoil that. We can at least say that next episode we're going to talk about the new Animal Collective album. Like, that'll be our featured album, isn't it now? Mm-hmm. Because we're recording this on the day before the album comes out worldwide. It leaked a month ago, so I have heard it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I've heard it a, a number of times. <laughs> it's great. We're not going to sit here and dwell on it, but I would be remiss if I didn't point out that that's what the situation is. And also... I'm going to keep nervously checking the uh, post office delivery <laughs> website thing to see when my record arrives, because supposedly it's going to be here within the next 20 minutes, but you know how it goes. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have the same inefficient post office in uh, Canada up there. I just assume everything's going to be like one to two weeks later than what they say. It's generally how it goes. And twice as expensive as it needs to be. Yeah, I basically have to pay double every time that I buy something from Domino. And they they stagger their releases too, which is so annoying because I'm like, you know, something will come out limited. Like if that, if Defeat and Isn't It Now were kind of made available around the same time, I wouldn't have had to pay that shipping two times, but now I have to pay it two times. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's got to be a pain in the ass. It certainly is. All right, well, like we said, the album leaked. (laughs) I liked it. We'll get into it, but just... uh, For our five listeners out there, get excited for next month. We're going to try to record them like... I've got a busy two months ahead of me, so there isn't going to be a November episode, but we're going to try to squeeze out a couple episodes before I'm unavailable, and then in December we'll get back on track, and then who knows what the future holds, you know? You never know. So, in the meantime, we should go ahead and do our own self-promotion for the next few hours. As I'm yeah, sure this is full is like self-indulgence uh, cast today. But you know what? We did three episodes. We proved our credibility. We nailed in <laughs> a loose structure. I think we can uh, 
indulge a little bit. I mean, the whole podcast is self-indulgent, right? I mean, who cares what we have to say? Who are we? I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to downplay the, the legendary status of Mr. Jordan Randall with the <laughs> well, the internationally known YouTube channel with Animal Collective Rarities that... I mean, again, that's the that's the way I discovered who you were. So I mean, I've become a celebrity for doing basically nothing, which is, I think, the best way that anyone can achieve that status. Yeah, I guess so. But at the same time, like, <laughs> you sort of started. I feel like your name or your channel, rather, was the more prevalent like source of these things, and then it also inspired other people to sort of take up the archiving. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't even do it anymore because of that. Because there's like a number of people that do it now and i'm like huh you know they'll probably catch whatever's on the o'brien system and but like up. your whole point was <laughs> when you started doing it was like well no one else is uploading this to youtube so i might as well just so it's up yeah yeah it was kind of like a, a more uh, accessible spot for other you know animal collective fans that maybe weren't part of like collected animals or didn't know about you know the discord and stuff like that to to kind of listen to these really cool bootlegs and rarities and stuff Although you started uploading them like years ago, right? Like mm -hmm. long yeah, time, ago. really long time ago, actually. Yeah, probably around the time I discovered the band. <laughs> that's I, that's wild to think. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and that that also is worth pointing out that it's been like almost ten years since I discovered like Meriwether Post Pavilion. I think it's coming up on nine years. So I mean, I, I know you're you like you said you're old, so you've been listening to them for longer than that. <laughs> yes, I did say I was old. Uh, yeah, no, I started, I started listening to them in, uh, 2005 was when I was introduced. Damn. I listened to Sung Tongs and, and Feels, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine's dad, uh, actually no, a friend of his, their dad showed it to him and his friend and he was like, yeah, this is like a cool band I've been listening to called Animal Collective. Then he showed them to me and I was like, this is fucking amazing. I think the first song that, uh. He played for me was Leaf House and then like Leaf House into Who Could Win a Rabbit. And I was just like, I was pretty much sold on Leaf House immediately. But as soon as Who Could, Who Could Win a Rabbit came on, I was like, whoa, like this, this is hitting everything that I, that, you know, I enjoy about music basically. And then the softest voice comes on and you're like, hey, who's got a joint? <laughs> I did smoke weed when I was listening to that, but I was also like, I was like 18 years old at that time. So I was, uh pretty emotional and i i remember like really feeling that that like softest voice those those little guitar plucks as like fuck man this this should be in a michelle gondry film that would be interesting actually does he even direct anymore is he still doing like commercials and music videos i haven't seen him do a feature so yeah he he's done a few features um since the ones that people know but they're all like they're all in french and i think they're very like limited releases oh gotcha because the last one I heard of was Be Kind, Rewind, which I think surprises a lot of people <laughs> that it's a Michelle Gondry movie. Yeah. Well, speaking of music and emotions, we should talk mm. about your album because it's it's very clearly an emotional, uh, I mean, from the title itself, a collection of thoughts that I think. It's it very yes. much, that is, a I think, a very apt title because it sort of works as like a mission statement for the content of the album. Yeah, I'm glad that that comes across. That was the the idea, I think. I but you know, it was kind of a it was one of those like lucky uh, titles because I had a different title for it for a very long time. It was going to be called uh, "Healthy Living," living with just a apostrophe after the, and I thought it'd be 
kind of funny because it's, you know, a lot of stuff that's kind of maybe like unhealthy thoughts to have kind of ironic in a way. But then I started to not like that title. And then, um, there's a lyric in the first song that says a collection of thoughts that I think, and I was like, ah, I'll just use that. That actually works perfectly. That took me like three or four listens to finally notice that, by the way. I think it was until <laughs> I started reading it with the al- with the lyrics. I was like, oh, that's where that comes from. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like basically just ripping off like Animal Collective left, right, and center here because it's coming out tomorrow, same, same day as Isn't It Now, and they also used a lyric from the song, I'm using a lyric from a song. Except your album is like 24 minutes and theirs is 64 <laughs> minutes. So Yeah, this is like triple the length. I mean, Defeat is barely shorter than your entire album. That's true, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Not a bad thing. I got nothing against the short album format. I think if you can get across your like musical statements in a succinct amount of time, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Yeah, well, it's funny because I remember listening to uh, an interview with A.V. Tear, and he was saying something along the lines of um, he finds it impossible to write short songs anymore. Like, all of his songs now are, are super long. Like, they're at least, like, six or seven minutes long. But I'm, like, the complete opposite. Like, I, I can't... Like, I used to write really long songs. When I was, like, first writing music when I was a teenager, like, every song was, like, at least six minutes. Because I felt like everything was necessary. I was like, yeah, I got to do like this intro. I got to do like, you know, two to four verses. And I got to do like a chorus, then back to the verse or like have like a like a musical break and then like back to the verse, all, all this shit. And like songs ended up being so long. And I mean, they were they were shitty songs, too, because like I was just like kind of learning how to write songs. So hearing these shitty songs for like six or seven minutes was excruciating in hindsight. I mean. We all start somewhere, right? I think one of I think the longest song on my first album was like twelve minutes, but I was trying to do like a person pitch kind of thing where I did like multiple sections and then sort of try to do more of like like reincorporate the melodies from the first two parts and the third part, but not like interplay kind of thing, but more like it background kind of elements. So you know, I think okay. it's it art is whatever you want it to be. But I think, Jordan, you and I can both attest to the fact that artists are their number one critics. Mm -hmm. So I have some umbrage. Before we talk about the full album, I want to just go ahead and air my grievance that you took down your album videotapes. And that makes me very sad (laughs) because I very much enjoyed that whole album. And now I can't I can't listen to it anymore in any way. You didn't download it while it was was up there? I guess not. I I think I only ever just streamed it, which, I mean, I don't want to insult your wallet or anything, but that's the truth of it. (laughs) No problem. I'll I'll send you a copy. Wait, do you really still have it? Well, I mean, yeah, I keep all my music, but I I tend to do this a lot. Like, I mean, I, I can't even say with certainty that, like, that will or won't happen to a collection of thoughts because, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's, like, self-doubt or something, but I, I often, I was actually even, like, wrestling with the idea of releasing this album and I felt like because we had agreed to talk about it that was like kind of like that cemented it <laughs> yeah because I always have this like this back and forth in my head whether or not the songs are any good or not and like even after it's already out and even if people like give me you know pretty decent feedback and stuff like at some point I can easily be like "Ooh, I don't like this anymore and then I'll just like take it offline right well I think the the trick to that is to just keep writing new songs and then put out the old mm-hmm. stuff and it's more of an afterthought in your own head. 
so you don't hyper focus on it. But anyway, yeah. we were talking about videotapes because I wanted to put Scatterbrain on uh, our upcoming album, uh, mm -hmm. TBD, sometime this decade. Yes. But you said that you tried to look it up on like an old hard drive, but you couldn't find it. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you found it since then, or maybe this is the same conversation we're having a second time. <laughs> no, I mean, I have like all the mix downs, but I don't have the, uh, I can't find the, the logic files to go in there and kind of make the adjustments. That literally, I just want to like, I just want to have the MP3s <laughs> and I'll be a happy camper, you know? Well, I will send you the MP3s. Okay. Thank God. All right, well, now that that's out of the way, we can move on to the new album. So I think we should, yeah, just go track by track, kind of like we did last week, but A, because there's only sure. eight songs, and B, since I have the artist here, I can get his thought process and, you know, thoughts behind uh, every single track. I'll, I'll spill all the beans. Let's start with the opener, An Uncommon Design. I found you on the shore I took you to my doorstep you to a collection of shells that I thought would make you feel less alone. Will you share with me the greatest history? Life's a mystery, I know that you feel like you have been fighting alone, but I swear that you won't. So this is, just right off the bat, I think this is sort of like, if anyone knows your previous albums, including videotapes, I'm not really familiar with your other album, which is called Imitating Life. So it's it's very much like a singer-songwriter kind of feel to it. And I think mm -hmm. this this very much make, reminds me of stuff like uh, of uh, Scatterbrain, where it's just like, as soon as it starts, I'm like, oh yeah, this is a Jordan Randall song, for sure. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. No, I I definitely um like get that vibe too. And I, I did try and kind of go a little bit in a, a different direction with this collection of songs. But yeah, that one was definitely like a classic Jordan Randall style short, uh, you know, very like focused on the melodies and like pretty stripped down. I think it's the only song really that has like piano in it on, on the album. I was going to say the piano on it is like one of the best parts of just like I feel like that immediately gets you into the mood for what the rest of the album is going to be. Just sort of that melancholy feel that can come with it, but it's also like bright and it's timber. Yeah, yeah. I always like um, enjoy music that kind of sounds a little happier than it, it, it like than it is, you know. Although I think this song is it's actually like pretty upbeat for the most part. I think even like lyrically and stuff, because I tend to write songs where it's like like scatterbrain and stuff where. I, that it'll have like a very upbeat backing track to it, but then like the lyrics will be kind of like a downer. So the Panda Bear school of songwriting. <laughs> yeah, I think all my influences are like basically in that same vein. I can see that. I'm just kind of scanning the lyrics to see if there was something I wanted to highlight because I did enjoy reading the lyrics. I, I guess the the question that I can ask, and you could probably ask any musician and it's an obvious answer, but... Was there a single, when you uh, when you write lyrics, uh, uh, oftentimes when it's something that's as personal as these songs, you quite literally will write I or you 
depending on who's being addressed or talked about in the lyrics. Is it fair to say that you is one person or a multitude of people from your past and, and present? Uh, definitely, yeah, definitely uh, a multitude of people. Um, I think, like in all honesty, at this point in my life, you know, like things are fairly stable. <laughs> so it's like I'll often use, you know, sort of other people's stories a lot of the time for inspiration and stuff like that. Because like I often do enjoy wallowing in the you know the the more like the more morose headspace so it's like when everything's going great in my life what do i do then with that urge to write that kind of stuff so i kind of like will sponge off of other people's shit so it's like yeah the you is kind of always changing the the i i think is always me from like so, to some degree you know it's like me in in the shoes of somebody else maybe from like a story that i've heard from somebody else but uh yeah the the you is always kind of kind of different I gotcha. Yeah, I, I can relate to the things are going good, so I don't have anything to write songs about feeling, mm. especially because, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> well, I got I got no problems at the moment. Nothing that's worth writing, not pouring my soul out into a song about. So I, I really at that point, all I want to do is just produce, you know, like mm. from the DAW or whatever. But I think I don't know. It can be hard to. Yeah, it, it can, unless you're like it's like an everyday thing for you. I think it can be difficult to find inspiration just for that's why I think writing lyrics is also like I can write instrumentals all day long, you know, but when it actually mm -hmm. comes to writing lyrics, I'm like, the fuck do I write about me or a movie <laughs> I saw? Right, exactly. And I think like sometimes for me, um, like I'll kind of almost just like stream of conscious sort of style, you know, come at the at the lyrics that way. It's like, you know, I think a lot of musicians do this where it's like you kind of just say words when you're trying to come up with a melody and it's just like gibberish words sometimes and stuff. And then that kind of acts as a placeholder and then until I find words. And a lot of the times, like more of these, more so these days, like the lyrics maybe sort of end up seeming a little bit more abstract because like there's a certain sonic, like, I guess, like melody that I'm going for that other words maybe don't work so well in, but then I'll like use a word anyway. And it's just kind of like, okay, well that, you know, might throw the listener off because that word kind of makes sense in my mind, but it, it's main function is it's melodic purpose right. more so than it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's lyrical purpose, I guess. It's tricky for sure. But I think there's also a fair amount of flexibility when it comes to stuff like that. I think as long as it doesn't like stick out like a sore thumb, you can get away with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I think when it comes to our band Lunar Panel, I'll just let you take all the lyric writing duties. <laughs> I uh, I'm cool with that. Um, I, I find like if I if I just spend enough time like looking at like you know uh, a piece of paper or you know some uh, screen on that I'm typing lyrics on, like eventually something will come out. So, well, here that's an interesting question: is could you write lyrics for a song you didn't write the instrumental to? Uh, yeah. Like, if you don't have that connection, would it still be? Yeah, for sure. Actually, um, I think some people would argue that my lyrics are probably better when I do that. I have this kind of open-ended project with a, with a friend of mine here in Toronto, uh, this guy called Mark Glenn. He's a really awesome musician. He's, he's like guitar player primarily, but he plays everything. And we did this project. We made an EP like... I think it was right before the pandemic our band was called open bar and uh we did like there's like five tracks on there or something and uh, he wrote all the music 
and I just came up with the the melodies and the lyrics and I I you know not not to toot my own horn or anything but I think that those are some of the best lyrics I've probably ever come up with and they're all based on like very like real personal stories and stuff but yeah I don't know like the it just worked out really well like the turn of phrase was really good I was I was very happy with the end product and I don't know why that happened it may have just been you know that perfect storm or something right. but or maybe because I didn't have to focus on anything except for the melodies and the lyrics I could just put more into that I don't know yeah I think that's what Ben Gibbard did for uh the Postal Service album Give Up mm. where Dintel had already written all the instrumentals and then would send them like I think he would literally send them in the mail through the Postal Service on like a flash right. drive or a CD or something or maybe God forbid a, a cassette tape <laughs> That's amazing to think that that was somehow easier than emailing it because they're not like 2002. Yeah, (laughs) I think it was. I I will say one thing, one one last thing about Uncommon Design in terms of inspiration. That song was written pretty much right after I saw uh, Marcel the Shell. And I think if you think about that song in that light, it'll make a lot more sense. Interesting. I still need to see that one. That's on my list. I don't think it came to a theater near me, so I wasn't able to go out and see it pretty sure it's on some streaming service let's move on yes. to gigantic the, the second song on the album a songbird on the forest floor he was singing songs but he don't sing no more in a time long the earth was one I think this probably, I sent you a tier list of my favorites to least favorites, which did change between my initial first hearing and like the fifth or sixth time I listened to the album. Mm -hmm. I think this is still like in my top three from the start because it is just like that. Okay, well, first of all, the drums in this, are they VST drums? So for the most part, all the drums on this are uh, sampled drums that I found in various places on the internet. Oh, interesting. Some of them are like layered with VSTs. I think for the most part with Gigantic, it is like literally just one sampled loop that I threw like some different effects on here and there. Sweet. Well, I, I was I just noticed that it's it had like a very real sound to it. So I, I couldn't honestly couldn't tell. I was like, is Logic really this advanced that they can make it sound like a kit in the room? Because that's great. No. Yeah, no, that's exactly why I used like sampled drums because yeah, I can't really achieve that sound with the uh, with the plugins. Well, I just love the melody on this one. Like, it has a bit of a like lead up to it, which mm-hmm. I think I don't know how I feel in a vacuum about it because I think the song, the rest of the song, is so tight that I, I as a fan, I'm just like, come on, get to the part I like, you know. <laughs> but of course. We li- our favorite band's Animal Collective, we have to be used to long intros at this point, mm-hmm. or what have you. But I really do love this song a lot. I think the size of love, that like hook in the song is just so strong that 
it's an earworm. It just gets stuck in your head. Like, it's so, like, catchy. And it seems that you're following a similar doctrine of put the best songs up front to get people hooked. And then, you know, they're along for the ride at that point. Because this one, the first three in particular are really strong. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like there's that, that duality in my head where I, I like all the songs, but I also, like, feel kind of like like I doubt the songs as well. But I, I did feel like those ones were probably, like, the most easily accessible or, like, would instantly, like, you know, ha- have that earworm effect. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought, like, originally, like, Crash Cars I thought was pretty catchy, and I thought that was going to go somewhere near the front. I thought an uncommon design because it was like a slower song was going to be the closer. But then I, you know, just kind of like spend a a couple hours like shuffling the songs around and seeing what worked better. And I think I literally just like shuffled the songs and they ended up in the sequencing that that ended up being the final sequencing. And and I was just like, interesting. This feels like it works. Like, yeah, because the the past, uh, which we'll get into soon, what felt like a little bit of an outlier. And I was like, where the fuck does this song go? Right. But yeah, Gigantic was um that song went through a lot of changes actually. That song originally wasn't I don't I didn't think it was going to make the cut cuz I wrote some some lyrics to that song that just uh, I kind of hated. Well, yeah, that's pretty much every I mean I wouldn't say it's every song, but there are a good number of songs in my past where, you know. I I think I have the tendency to like if I overthink something, then I fall out of love with what appealed to me about it in the first place, and then I just drop it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think for me, the most successful songs are like something that just comes together really quickly and mm-hmm. doesn't require too much additions to it. Because I think there is something about that initial sort of jam or that spark that if anything you try to add to it later on doesn't match the quality of what you were able to just jam out in the first place it can feel a little disappointing like the 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 nugget of the song that you fell in love with when you have to turn it into a proper song because as much as i would love to just put out 90 second tracks (laughs) all the time i think people have different expectations and and you know people can get upset if it seems like there's more potential to his song, but then they you just don't follow through on it i mean we we can't all be guided by voices and somehow nail it in 90 seconds but you know, it's it's a it's a tough thing, but I think you did a really good job with this one. I really do enjoy it. I think if you were, you know, like a mainstream act and you were doing marketing and all that, I think this would definitely be a single, mm-hmm. which I guess we should talk about the non-album tracks, because I think <laughs> that I guess I didn't realize how much time had passed between mm-hmm. Mother Earth and now. That's literally a year ago because I was going through my yeah. my Instagram story archive when I shared it. And I was like, oh, shit, that was his previous birthday. And he just had his next birthday like <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that was originally going to be uh, like that. That was one of the first songs with the first batch of songs that I was writing with the idea of making like an album. So like, you know, the Mother Earth, like where the wildest waters rush, uh, Plaza Lounge, like all the, all those ones were originally intended to be part of this album. You know, I, I just knew I wanted to make an album. But then as time went on, I was like, okay, these songs feel kind of like out of place. Like I think Mother Earth still kind of like works with, with the kind of like the sequence and stuff. But there was something about it where I was like, I don't know, maybe too much time has passed and I'm kind of, I'm kind of over that song. So decided to leave it on. 
Well, I think it's also, it, it does seem to have a different sort of atmosphere or like it seems to go bigger than the rest of the songs on the album. You know, mm-hmm. it does seem yeah. a little more, I don't know how I, I could really describe it, but I, I get what you're saying. But at the same time, as a Jordan Randall fan, I do wish that <laughs> both it and Where the Wildest Waters Rush had ended up on the album. I think the latter could have been the uh, closer if you wanted to go for something more downbeat. But I guess Watching Me Die is kind of a, kind of a low-key closer, but we'll get to it, of course. Yeah, Let's just kind of expand on some of those other songs. So I'm going to release probably in a within the span of a month the like the B sides album to this album or EP. Uh, so I wrote about thirty songs. Damn, leading up to this, and I ended up using eight of them. So there's uh, yeah about twenty twenty or so songs that um, yeah just uh, didn't make the cut. So I'm gonna put them together on a little like it's gonna be longer than the actual album. Nice. <laughs> so. It'll be kind of interesting, but yeah, I think there's around like 20 other songs that uh, that I wrote and recorded, but just didn't didn't make sense with the the collection. So you're really selective, then, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, it took a long time to kind of like really narrow it down. I mean, I still wasn't overly sure. There was still a couple like up until literally yesterday, where I was like, maybe I should swap out this song for this one. I was like, no, no, no. How long did it take from like? wanting to start like when did you start doing that first batch of songs like how how long ago was that up compared to like when you're putting it out so the earliest song was in 2021 that was uh castle ghost and uh i'm gonna include like on the b-sides thing i'm gonna include like the the 2021 demo that i recorded of that's actually quite different than what the the version that ended up on the album sounds like interesting yeah so that's the that's the earliest one but then i yeah, I think I the other songs like Mother Earth and stuff and uh, and Uncommon Design, I think that was all around like last year around around that time that Mother Earth came out like around my birthday, September. And uh then Roger that was a that's a pretty old song. That was like somewhere probably like maybe uh like spring of 2022. I think I wrote well, that one. you can't talk old songs with me. We wrote Harry Anderson in 2020 <laughs> and it didn't come out till 2022. Yeah. So there you go. Or was it might have been like right at the start of 2021. It was a long time. And we still haven't mm-hmm. put out our second single which we wrote in Yeah, that's been gestating for a while. <laughs> that was <laughs> almost a good song too. That was over a year ago now. So, we got to get yeah. to that. Anyway, let's let's get to the next song. Track 3. The Past. I like how upbeat this one is, and I feel, speaking of that song that we haven't finished, Night in Barcelona, I feel like mm. it, there is a little similar, like, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, like, rhythm with the synths <laughs> in the background that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I love me a square synth. Ah. But anyway, 
the past is great. I think it's a very straightforward. There's not really much to it as as far as mm-hmm. like lyrical depth, which not to insult mm-hmm. your songwriting, I just mean from a general standpoint. I think it's a very like you are sort of prioritizing the upbeat feeling in the like house feel of the beat over you know trying to make some sort of big emotional artistic statement 100 percent agree with that yeah that that song actually like required me to shave down lyrics because i was like okay it's it needs to be really simple and uh yeah i think i think it was pretty simple in the end yeah the the, the one thing about that song though even though it does sound like a very straightforward and simple song like I will say that it's probably one of the more complex bass lines that I've ever written for for any songs. And and I think what's cool about it is that I don't think it necessarily comes across as like a technically difficult like bass line. And there's parts that are like more, you know, I guess technical than uh, than other parts in that song, but um it was one of those ones where I was like, should we play an excerpt from the bass line and and we'll just have you send me the stems so we can insert it right here? <laughs> yes. Wow, I love the way that sounds. I totally heard it just now. I know I can comment on exactly what I just heard. Well, I, I like the lyric, do you remember the past, the soot and the ash, it burned fast. And that may be because I just watched like a number of Werner Herzog documentaries where he visits <laughs> volcanoes, especially the okay. one about like the, the crafts, Maurice and Katya, the like famous scientist, the vo- volcanologist couple that... They were filming a volcano in Japan, but the it basically erupted so quickly they didn't have time to get out, and they were like embalmed in the uh, the the rock and the soil and stuff, which is nuts. But apparently that's how they wanted to go out. So it it just reminded me of that. How there is there is like a bit of a uh, like Pompeii sort of etched in stone quality to it. And I mean I think that is what you were kind of going for with the song was that like you know the song the past. The like time is constantly moving on. You can't really focus on the past, but you know it's still there. It's never. It's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, for sure. That's uh, definitely what I was going for. And um, yeah, maybe some like more morose idea that like you know these kind of things in the past that are like ephemeral are just going to keep repeating themselves. And you know, it's like a hopeful song about being hopeless, I guess. That that describes like half of the songs I've ever written. So I get I know what you mean. <laughs> that's pretty much all my songs too. So I, again, I think that's uh, that also has the quality to be a single. If you were gonna do, I know some people don't have like having duplicates on streaming, but I don't care. I mean, maybe if you have a different mm-hmm. album art or like a single album art, it can work. But I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking like some of the songs, that was one I considered as a single too. Like, I mean, I have all these early demos and stuff. Like I could kind of, you know, do the single release and then that can have like some demos or whatever as well. Kind of see how the song became that, what it is. All right, well, let's move on to number four, Castle Ghost. Zeros for all the zeros. How about you? How about you? 
I do like this song, despite it being the lowest on my uh, my tier. <laughs> yeah. I, I I do want to point that out that like every song, there, I, I think there's a song on here I would rate lower than like a C, and that's still pretty good. Okay. So you know, I mean, or maybe like okay. I guess if we're gonna do one to ten, then like a seven. You know, okay, which okay. is still pretty solid. I just that's, I, that's very fair. That's very fair. I, like I thought the, for a second you were gonna say you hate Castle Ghost. No, <laughs> though it does make me think of. One of those Bowser's Castle Mario Kart levels where the ghosts are like flying in, and if you get too close to them, they'll they'll make you spin out. Anyway, <laughs> that's what it's about. <laughs> I do like the instrumentation in this song. It, there is like a little bit of like a jangly pop indie. Like, I, I, would I be wrong to say modern baseball or American football? One of those two. Yeah, there is yeah, like a bit sure. of a little bit of a quality to it, but it's also like you combined that and reggae. Or, or like dub, kind of, especially yeah. with all the effects and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, like, I, I wouldn't have made those two connections necessarily, but that is what it is. Like, there is this sort of, like, dub aspect to it, which, yeah, when you do hear the original demo, none of that's in there. Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was one of those songs that came together, like, very quickly. It's a very short song. I just, you know, ended up, like, having a lot of fun with it in basically post-production because I was like, okay, what can I do? to make this song sort of like stand out a little bit more. Yeah. It's, it's about a a guy like a a king of a castle, let's say in Spain. And he, uh, you know, is being visited by like this family of ghosts. But then it turns out, Greg, that he was the ghost the whole time. He's the castle ghost. You guys can't (laughs) see it, but I look very distressed right now. I actually didn't pick that up. I, I was really just more like, hey, it talks about a yellow dog. I used to have a <laughs> yellow dog. I didn't call him Emerio, but I yeah. think I would probably like this song more if it didn't have the... And, and it, it sounds cool like when you have the delay like come off of it, but I'm not personally a huge fan of the, you know, Alborio, like that mm. little part of it. It's yeah. not like my favorite, but I think it definitely makes it distinct. That's for sure. I mean, is that a polite way of saying I don't like it? Maybe, <laughs> but I don't know. I think there is, it's not, I don't want to discredit it, you know, just because of that. I think it's still a good song, but <laughs> I, I like the melody in it. I, I I just think that if it were me making the song, <laughs> I wouldn't have put that in. But again, I didn't make this album, so I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you're wrong for doing it. I just, it's a personal preference thing. Totally. And that's absolutely fine. I do like it though. I, I there's a reason that it was in my favorites when I first listened to it. But I think just upon re-listen, maybe that like repetitive section to it, like the non-verse part, mm-hmm. maybe just didn't hold up as well. But you know, that's fair. it is what that's it is, fair. right? Everyone experiences music differently. That's true. And some people they loop songs and don't listen to them so that they can get up their scrabbles for some insane reason. But. You know, <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Song number five. Number five. Cadet. 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 
song this this song is um this one's pretty pretty direct i think in terms of what this song is about this is about this is a this is actually a personal story like this past year i like basically broke up with one of my closest friends because uh yeah he's kind of a piece of shit (laughs) and uh ultimately a space cadet and you know this whole song kind of came from this feeling of like still kind of caring about the person, but also kind of acknowledging their flaws and maybe like seeing problems that they're having and reflecting on those problems myself. Yeah. And I think, I think the lyrics are pretty, pretty straightforward. Probably like the least abstract on the whole album, I think on this song. Yeah. I I think my, my, I think with reading the lyrics, I think I automatically assume that if someone's writing a song where you is in the lyrics, I assume it's their significant other, and in this case, your wife. Again, I can't assume that because I don't know her very well. Yeah. And I don't want to sit here and tell people that that's what it's about. But I think that's just the headspace I had going into it. So it's interesting to hear that it wasn't about a romantic thing, but it was more of a friendship thing. Yeah, exactly. I think um, it's funny because every time I release songs, I always have to assume that people are going to think that I'm writing songs that about my wife <laughs> it's like yeah that does come into it sometimes but yeah some of the other songs are like i said earlier about different totally different things maybe even things that don't happen in my life but this one yeah this was like this is basically like a, a breakup song um but about a friend of mine well i really like the acoustic guitar jugs the chugs if you will thanks that that stuff all really works i i like the whole song honestly except i i did say earlier mm-hmm. the the <laughs> spoken word part i'm like eh i don't i don't like that <laughs> that's probably the one thing on the album where i'm just like ah, i i would i if you would if i could turn back time <laughs> you would tell me don't do that part it's not <laughs> like it, it, it maybe it's just because it feels a little corny to me but then again, I think it's tricky with spoken word for to not fall into that pitfall. For sure, yeah. I think like, you know, I, I've I grew up listening to a lot of like Bob Dylan and stuff, and I think that was kind of the influence there. Like I think I probably did some vocal takes where it was like full on, you know, you're up there in the cloud. You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> That would have been I'd great s- though, honestly. Sounded down a little bit. Full Bob Dylan. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a weird. It, was it because you wanted to do specifically a spoken word part or was it because you couldn't find a way to put a melody to that lyric that satisfied you? Um, I think I wanted to do the spoke because I think musically, because it's weird. It, that part musically kind of changes key so slightly from the verses. And I was like, OK, this is it's going to be a little different. So I think I just ended up like, you know, placeholder gibberish lyrics in the same style a little more bob dylan-y uh when i fo- first wrote it but then i was like okay i'll like you know i'll put these words in because it makes sense with the, within the context of what the song's about and yeah i really just like i never even really second guessed it i was like yeah i'll just have a little spoken word part here and it's it's different 
Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, Greg. <laughs> it's okay. I uh, I'll take that. I gotta give you props for the the high the higher vocals part. The you know because I feel like there is a bit of like that is like a part where I wouldn't have thought to write a part in a song like that. So it's hard for me to get in the headspace. Like I feel like if someone said this is how you sing it, I'd be like, no, that's corny. But you totally <laughs> nailed it. Like you make it work. And but there's again, I don't think something being corny is necessarily a bad thing. Like I watched all four seasons of The Good Place. goddammit. it. <laughs> so I think I understand when corn can be appealing, but even yeah. then here, I, I think it just really like, I, I think what really appeals to me about your songwriting in general is just how often you change things up, but never in a way like a dirty projectors way where it feels mm-hmm. like in your face about it, where there is just sort of like the, it flows really well, but you don't really dwell on one musical idea for too long. Like the few lunar panel demos that you've written that like, I've I've had the opportunity to expand on. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that that's like a thing where it's like there's already like an A, B, and C thing, and then there's still the rest of the song to go. So that's that's and it's not like you do A all the way to H or anything like that. Like there isn't a fair yeah. amount of repeating sections. But I think and this is maybe something I've noticed like when listening to a lot of Steely Dan mm-hmm. is just like you know they know what the the strongest ideas are, but you can't just sit there and and do it over and over again you got to switch it up a bit and the trick is how and where do you switch it up and Mm. they they often have a thing where they'll just like if they have like a writing groove it'll just switch to like a do da do da da do da do da and then go back into whatever it (laughs) was like they it's a very trade it's like if you listen to two Steely Dan albums back to back, you're like, okay, I think I've heard enough marimba and uh, double hits of the cymbal. Point being, I think that if I, I, I got to at least point that out before we get to the rest of the album, because it kind of applies to all the songs in it. Like even mm-hmm. the ones that are more straightforward, like the past, there is enough like switching it up. And I think, you know, especially when it gets to like the autotune stuff, I think that is a little bit of like, it's like if the album itself could have a little bit of a trademark. It could mm-hmm. be that occasionally you just go into the auto zone, if you will, yeah. not the, the not the car parts <laughs> business, but you you go into the auto tune arena mm-hmm. for a bit, and I think uh, there is something like I don't know, there's something subconscious about that going from standard to auto tune that like conveys a different emotion, but I can't really put it into words beyond that. I don't know. There's something sort of ethereal about it. Yeah, it was it was like one of those things that like when I first was recording music and starting to like kind of experiment with auto tune, I was like, like, I really hated it. I was like, I don't, you know, want people to think that I'm doing this because I like can't sing or something, you know, like I ended, I I, honestly like animal collective was a a really big influence to make me okay with using the auto tune. Like after buoys and stuff, I was like, like, okay, like it's cool. Like (laughs) I can use it. Like I don't have to feel like ashamed to use it. Like I I like the way it sounds and I think other people will too. And it's like, I don't have to use it the whole time, but I can use it in certain parts. And, um, yeah, sometimes I still kind of wrestle with what parts should and shouldn't have it, but I'm more okay with like using it. Here's my question is, do you use it like a, like a subtle amount throughout the entire thing? like on your regular vocals just to keep it in tune in case you're slightly off or is it just you just do a retakes until you get it right yeah it's pretty much like all or nothing for me like yeah if it doesn't sound like it has auto-tune on it then it probably doesn't have auto-tune on it because i know 
like some people use Melodyne, well, they'll, where they'll go in and like really fine tune mm. the frequency of each individual syllable to get it yeah. perfect. No, I've never gotten that that hardcore into it. Yeah, I like literally just use. Yeah, I, I use like the the pitch correction um, VST on on Logic, and that's pretty much it. And and sometimes like sometimes the songs will you know it just won't even work with the with the pitch correction because like the keys change and I'm I'm too lazy to make multiple tracks and stuff like that. So right. Yeah. Well, as far as Animal Collective, I do kind of wish that more of the auto tune had persisted. I guess we can get into that next episode, but <laughs> me too. Having heard the new album, there are some parts where live back in 2019 when they debuted it, they used auto tune and then here it's completely stripped away and it's like mm-hmm. I get why you don't want it to be on this particular album in this sequence because it then it would like stick out too much. I mean, they don't want another what did I done? <laughs> anyway, I'm not opposed to using autotune for the record. I just find it interesting yeah. that, you know, it was so overused back in the day. And now when people use it, there's like a little bit of a taboo to it. But it's like, you guys know T-Pain can actually sing, right? And he actually sounds way yeah. better than if he caked himself in autotune. So it's true. I don't know. I think it's a t- like like AI. It's a tool to be used, but it shouldn't it shouldn't replace the whole thing, unless that's what you're going for, in which case go for it. But autotune can't plagiarize other people's work anyway. Yeah. <laughs> let's move on okay track six which is roger that Which starts out with a Star Wars sample, <laughs> which I'm curious what specifically that's from. Is that from a video game? Yeah, because it's, it's a very it's, clean. It's actually from. Um, it's from. It's from COD. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I totally hear it. But it has like that same sort of like speaker box filter to it yeah. that makes it sound like a stormtrooper yeah. in Star Wars. So, was yeah, that what was... you were going for, or was it just like the phrase in general? So honestly, like that, that title was a placeholder title. Like often when I just, you know, open up like logic and I start a, um, a song, like I'll, I'll just put some placeholder title there and I, for whatever reason, put Roger that. And then as I was writing that song and it kind of came together, I was like, okay, that like, maybe the title should be, um, you know, one of the refrains or something and, and, or a lyric. And then all the lyrics, like, I don't know, like as titles, it just sat, they all sounded really corny. And I was like. I was like, I was talking to my wife about it, and she was like, just, just use Roger that. It kind of sounds neat. 
I was like, why not? It has nothing to do with the song. <laughs> Terrorist win. <laughs> oh, wait, I guess that's Counter-Strike, but that's... you get right. <laughs> yeah, th- throw that in at the end. <laughs> I really like this one. I like especially how it goes from like sort of a standard sort of like songwriting feel and then it just goes full on into like the house like four to the floor <laughs> <Yeah>. drums <laughs> like it's because honestly as soon as that part comes on every time i just want to start head banging because it just like randomly starts going super hard and i'm like well this is great <laughs> I, I this one does feel like straight up a love song I, this is, of course yeah. the first lyric is hey my love yeah and this there's is nothing in here that makes me think <laughs> it does feel just like a you're sort of spilling your beans yeah there's no ambiguity. This is a love song about my wife. That's that's all it is. Yeah, and it's got <laughs> it's got some different sounds. I think to the rest of the album, especially in the choruses. The lyrics kind of remind me of like a like a pet sounds song, mm. where it is just very much like just just pouring your heart out. But also like it, it's not a ballad by any means. But it's also like. I don't know. It's just got that sort of quality to it. Like if if you told me that this was a list of like Brian Wilson lyrics from a song <laughs> I'd never heard, I'd be like, yeah, I, I'll believe that. <laughs> I mean, maybe he wouldn't say he often fucks up. But, <laughs> I was going to say probably not that. As long, time but... goes on, if he's not doing the Disney albums, he'll yeah. be fine. But that being said, I do think like there's something Disney esque about that song too. Like I I'm sure I ripped off the the line, but like that opening uh, and, the, and the the bass line that continues throughout. Like that, I swear, is like from some Disney movie or something. Yeah, there is like a bit of like an alt 90s rock feeling to that bass line. Mm -hmm. But I like it. It's kind of it's funky. It gets you into it. Yeah, I think you just there's something about like the way each of these songs start, which maybe when we get to the next song (laughs) will be more of a debate. But I think you, you just have like a way of immediately getting someone into the feel of a song. And, you know, I, I don't think there's really any, like, sections of music on the album that, like, stick out like they shouldn't be there. Even if the, the ones that I'm not particularly a fan of. Mm-hmm. I think as far as the vibe of the song you're going for, they seem to work really well. All right. Number, the uh, penultimate song, number seven, Crash Cars. I think I thought originally I think I called it crashing cars, but maybe that's the killer's fan in me 
thinking of Under the Gun and all that. But Well, originally it was called Cars Crash. Whoa, whoa. Look, at we got an artist over here. <laughs> By the way, for those listening, my album did get here about half an hour ago. I just oh, didn't no want way. to interrupt our conversation to point it out. Uh, my Animal Collective album is here. I am going to probably Go wait to it. listen to it till I get a better turntable. No, we're going to keep talking. Okay. I'm not going to. I wouldn't. <laughs> you, you're unless not. it was absolutely a necessity. It's inside, so everyone can relax. Okay, it's okay. not out in the Texas say, heat. Yeah, getting if it was all out warped. on the stoop, like, yeah. <laughs> um, I think... Uh, so you added a new... In- I, For context for those listening, <laughs> yes. I got an early copy of this album about two weeks ago, something like that. Yeah. And it had different production choices, which actually Jordan sent me the updated version this morning, and I got to compare it. And there is like a little bit of a uh, an intro that you added to the front of this one. Mm-hmm. What is there a specific reason for that, or did it just is it like that same sort of like you listen to something of your own for so long you start to get tired of it and you want to switch it up a bit to keep it fresh? Yeah, a little bit. Like I, I definitely felt so, something irked me about it just coming in like very hard. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I knew. I was kind of thinking like I was like toying around with the idea of having something come before that. Like I was thinking about having the crashing car sound effect, but that just sounded so corny and cheesy in the end. So I was like, okay, maybe there's like a cool way to have a little intro lead up to it. And so I just basically like took the baseline and then like slapped a couple bars of that at the front. And then I was like, okay, like, and the, the drum beat on top of that, so that it's all like VST. I did that on the MIDI keyboard. And then, um, well, I really like the guitar loop in the uh, the main part of the song. Yeah, yeah, no, that was like I I just kind of put that together real quickly, and I was like, I I kind of like this, and and I like the fact that it was kind of like lower in volume, so it's kind of like there's this really awesome uh, hymn song actually that you mean her? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we'll we'll go full discussion on on this on another yeah. uh, another episode, but uh, yeah, there's a song. It's called I think it's actually called I I Love You, uh, and then in brackets a prelude to tragedy. And it uh, starts off with, like, it's just, like, so low in volume. And it's, like, it's this, like, weird, like, jump scare that they did on purpose where it's, like, you're forced to turn up the volume because you're, like, oh, I got to hear the song. But then all of a sudden it just fucking jumps in, like, full volume and just, like, blows blows your head off of your shoulders. Yeah, that definitely seems like a deliberate thing that they would do. Yeah. I mean, not knowing them as, <laughs> as a band. I don't know. Just... That seems like a Bam Margera decision. <laughs> yeah, it's a jackass stunt on an album. But uh, yeah, so it was uh, kind of similar, but not as hardcore uh, with the idea that that like to in the place of having a car crashing sound effect, that the the abruptness or the idea of a car crashing would just come in the way of like that start, you know, hitting after a, a fairly lower volume section at the beginning. So that, that was kind of in a nutshell, the idea behind it. Well, I really, I think this is, I don't, can't remember where it was in my, I think it was in my top five from this album, Crash Cars, because I, I really do like the, like, guitar loop in this one. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't need to be too, like, complicated, but I also like the way that it's, like, incorporated in the hook part of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. So, it's just a, it's a great little upbeat song. I, <laughs> I have no complaints, aside from the intro, but, of course, I'm not the artist. <laughs> just the audience member i think i uh, i i couldn't be a music critic because i would ultimately i would be able to decide too much with a musician you know i wouldn't be able to <laughs> that's fair 
I'd be like, I didn't like this, but making things is hard, and especially when you put so much of your <laughs> of your heart into it. But also, it's not something I would do. But of course, like I, it would just be me going in loops, and I'd never, you'd never get a pitchfork review out of me. That's for sure. That's funny. But I mean, it's uh, you know valuable. Uh, you know, your input is valuable as well. I you know, I only know what I know, so it's like it made sense for me to do it. I mean. You might, everyone might hate that intro for all I know. <laughs> I might be the only one that thought. No, it I think sense. it's literally, they won't even notice because they didn't hear the early version like I yeah, did. Yeah. That didn't happen. That's true. So this is another one where you have like the sort of like fast lyrics and like a, not a verse, but like a, uh, or a chorus, but like a pre-chorus kind of bit. Or maybe mm-hmm. that is the chorus. I think that's the thing with this songwriting is that it, it <laughs> it's hard to like, you know what the verse is, but then the rest of it is just like the rest of the song and it all works together. Yeah, I well, yeah, this, this one I think it it does like sort of like three there's like three parts I would say. Like there's like the the main verse and then there's like kind of like an a variation of the verse and then there's like the chorus. And then I think that structure just kind of repeats itself two times and then the chorus goes like two times at the end with more instruments coming in on that last one, but um yeah, it's just like uh to me it was very just kind of like almost like a pop punk song and um kind of had like a little bit of an 80s vibe going on with it um one another one of the really early songs like i think i wrote that in like bef- like either spring or summer of uh 2022 kind of like changed the lyrics a little bit since then but yeah pretty otherwise kind of stayed the same and that's another one of those songs where it's like some of the lyrical choices are kind of purely for melodic purposes more so than lyrical purposes all right well i gotta say that as far as a song on a Jordan Randall album, it's good. I'm starting to run out of <laughs> starting to run out of compliments that I can give you. It's that's totally fine. I I feel very complimented. So again, another one where I think it could be a single. I think this this album's got a lot of them. You know, and if they're all that's singles, al- that's always a good thing. <laughs> okay, the last the last song. Let, let's get to the the closer. Let's, watching me watching die. Me die. Yeah. I quickly things can. This one's uh, a little bleak. Uh, you were talking about the the upbeat instrumental and the the darker lyrics earlier, but I think this one definitely has like a the more most relatable of the lyrics, but also like yeah, pretty. It goes to a, a darker place than the rest of the album. Yeah, but it just for, it just feels yeah. more sincere that way. Yeah, for sure. I think this one's like you know, like yeah, very relatable. I think to a lot of people, just kind of you know feeling like you're not doing the right thing or whatever in your life or like you know having aspirations that are always like a little bit 
a little bit out of reach that you're trying to constantly catch up with or something feeling like you've wasted time that stuff so yeah i think it's um but ultimately it's uh i think an optimistic song because i think ultimately it is a little bit of a love song and it's kind of about this this balance or whatever in life where like you know you can't appreciate the sweet without the sour i guess everything's a balance yeah i i I think it's definitely relatable with like i can relate to the feeling of having a daily routine like that and it may be being not the way that you envision that your life would go but at the same time you're you are like contemplating the future while at the same time sort of embracing the present Mm -hmm. in a good way so yeah for sure and that's another song that you got an early uh version of that's slightly different on the the final one little little tweak yeah i think i only noticed that because of the lyric sheet like if you hadn't pointed it out i wouldn't have noticed because (laughs) it is so tiny it's literally just one word yeah but i think if I saw a headstone with the phrase, it was nice on it, I'd be like, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. I like, you know, that whole idea, that's why I changed the lyric was that in the end, it's like, you know, you, you just, no matter what you're doing with your life, if you feel like you're kind of, you know, uh, squandering opportunities or you're, you know, you're, you're taking full advantage of the opportunities, so long as you had a good ride, you know, like... What does it matter? Right. And I, I should point out, I really like the lyric, bending circles out of squares, because that's a very, I like the visual of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it works, like, as soon as you say it, I'm like, I can picture someone in my mind, like, actually doing that and, like, turning it into, like, a hula hoop or something. <laughs> yeah. And then it's a, a really interesting way to end the album, because it does, to me, sort of feel like a middle album track. But mm-hmm. like you said, you hit shuffle, so... <laughs> if it works it works you know i think just because of the um maybe like the perceived moroseness of it i think um it felt like a good closer i think just like visually also with the title being watching me die i feel like that made sense to be the last one it's like oh that that sounds like that's going to be a really dark one at the end with that title but then you like probably listen to it and be like oh, it's actually quite a yeah, beat that afrobeat yeah loop going a very familiar afrobeat loop mm-hmm. hint hint but um, <laughs> it works. And I again, it, it, when you slow it down a bit, it may be a little like jarring at first. But then mm. like as the lyric, like as the hook, the watching me die part comes out, I think it, t- it just ties it all together in this very Jordan Randall synchronistic way, you know? <laughs> nice. Well, yeah. I, I'm glad it uh, comes across that way. It was it was one of the ones that I was definitely like on the fence about including on the album as well because I did. I, there's when you hear those B sides, you'll you'll probably you know think to yourself like maybe maybe this one should have been on the album. There's I could have gone like in the brother sport direction and and gone with a uh, a very upbeat ending, but I was like, yeah, let's let's go with this. Watching hey, I'm not opposed to making my own fan mix, uh, my own track list. I mean, that's what I'm doing for the both yeah. of the Animal Collective albums. So there you go. Yeah, you can make the uh, the supercut of uh, the like almost 30 songs that I recorded if you want. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did. I think I did that with uh, Kid A and Amnesiac and all the B sides back in the day before they did on vinyl with the, for the anniversary and all that. So right. All right. Well, everyone, go check out this album uh, if you like what you heard. If you don't like what you heard, get <laughs> don't lost. Don't bother checking it out. Don't yeah, I guess. It. But Choice still, you know, support Jordan <laughs> Randall because he's a great musician. And I think because I spent 
two years making this documentary and wanting to preserve media and, and keep stuff online for people to enjoy, you should put videotapes back up on streaming. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Maybe. I, <laughs> I'll have to think about that. There's a number, I, number of albums that have had very short lifespans online and then come off. And... Well, then I need the entire archive because, uh, I mean, well, shit. You're you're going to be looking at a lot of songs then because I've been making albums since I was like 15. So, Well, I'd be interested to hear how your musical journey started and how it evolves, you know. Like that's kind of like when I when I go all the way back to like the Ween tapes they were making when they were like 15. Mm. It's interesting to hear how there is like, like it doesn't really resemble a lot of their later music, but it also sort of does in like in like a subconscious way. Yeah, I think that like that's probably the case for most artists. Like I, I definitely would say that's the case for me because like there, there's always this kind of like root thing, whether it's like those you know kind of like you know the, the morbid fascination lyrics or like you know um that kind of melodic sensibility i think has always been something that has been in in my songwriting thing like from the beginning but uh yeah i think that if anything now it's i'm just trying to like trying to use the tools that i have in different ways to make things sound kind of different but i will openly admit that in you know however long it's been that i've been writing songs there are a shit ton of songs that will to most people sound identical. <laughs> There's a lot of songs where I'm like, Oh, I'm just writing the same song again. But I'm like, you know what? No one's heard it. So who cares? Hey man, we reviewed that misfits album and we complimented <laughs> the hell out of it for doing the exact same thing. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, if the, if the music's good and, and I mean, what are we going to review a beach house album and then just say that 12 times in a row? <laughs> All right. Well, Everyone go listen to the album. It's on, I'm assuming it's going to be on everything like Spotify, on Apple Music, YouTube. Everything. Everywhere Deezer, you go. Tidal, Amazon it, Music. Oh, well, wait, no. Are yeah. they shutting down Amazon Music? I don't know. Did that just Did come they, out like a day or two ago? I heard, I'm not aware of that. Oh, maybe it was Google. I wouldn't be surprised if they Google shoot. Music is shutting Google, down. Google uh, Music has always been basically non-existent, so that's totally fine if they shut that down. Right. And if they shut down Spotify, I won't complain because I hate their fucking user interface. But yep, I mean, I'm not uh, saying you should simp for a billion dollar corporation, but if you're <laughs> going to on on the music streaming side, Apple Music's where it's at. And I'm pretty sure that the reason that your two most listened to songs on Apple Music are Mother Earth and Where the Wildest Waters Rush is because of me. So, <laughs> well, thank you, Greg, so you know. my number one fan. Yeah, I guess that's true at this point. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Is there someone out there that you think is like more into your art that isn't you? Uh, I don't know. I I don't I don't think I think about it enough. <laughs> I I Fair I enough. see I see the Dude. the listener counts and I I don't know. I I that's kind of where it starts and ends for me. I'm like, okay, somebody's listening to it. That's right. cool. Well, I think it's fair to say that your animal collective archiving is more well known than your songwriting. Yeah, but which is not weird. to discredit the songwriting. Just yeah, because I try and like you know throw some some music on the YouTube channel every now and again. I'm like, come on guys, click on that. They're like, no, it's not Animal Collective. <laughs> so I got. I, what you maybe gotta, I should do? You got to do a full on AV Terror impression. Yeah, and see if yeah. People fall for it. Or maybe like I'll put up like a bootleg and then just kind of slip some of my songs in the, in the middle of it. You know. And then when they're listening to yeah, it, people will like, be like, whoa, I've never heard this. Whoa, Where did it come from? Sounds so different. And then someone tries to interview them about it months later, and <laughs> yeah. they're like, I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. What are you about. talking about? <laughs> we never made a song called Castle Ghost. 
that's it for our album discussion. We're going to move on to the Good documentary on. that I made. But before we do that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. This is Tobor. Tobor, the telesonic robot. Batteries not included. He's under your control. With a click from the telesonic commander to circle, to proceed forward, to circle, or to pick up the support module and return, all on your command. Tobor is robot spelled backwards. Tobor, the telesonic robot from Shopper. All right, welcome back. We have a special guest with us today. We are joined by a man whose face I've become very familiar with over the last two years, and his voice, of course. Mr. Travis Bowles, filmmaker, videographer, father, husband, Twin Peaks fan, man of all, jack of all <laughs> video, audio, video trades, kind of. Not to downsell. Oh God, this is going horribly. I'm comfortable with this that is intro. Just a train wreck of an intro. Welcome. Thank you, Travis, for joining us. I think that that was the best way that you could have introduced. <laughs> if no one cuts me off, I'm just going to keep going, and it'll just get worse and worse. So. Well, let's not cut him off then. Let's see where this goes. No, let's uh, start the t- the movie talk instead, <laughs> I think. Okay, yeah, that's probably better. Everyone idea. already knows these episodes are too long anyway. Okay, so y- you made a movie, I did. Greg. I made a documentary. You made a documentary. You spent two years making a documentary. I guess I should give the backstory to what it is. Yes, What what is an elegant weapon? What is Where does that name for those who maybe have not seen a particular series of films? So... Where does that name come it from? It comes from the movie Star Wars, as it was originally titled in the 1970s. Uh, <laughs> people now know it as Episode Four: A New Hope. But it's the scene where Obi-Wan brings Luke back to his hut, and he gives him a lightsaber. And after Luke turns it on the first time, he's waving it around a bit. Obi-Wan describes it as an elegant weapon from a more civilized age, meaning that it's somehow more civilized than a projectile weapon, which has way more tactical advantages but he's also a monk with a sword so you know you can't really argue with him so I, the reason i chose that title is because the documentary is about travis bowles and his friends Corey gray jonathan pruitt aaron Irvin, who is now his wife and a handful of others in the early 2000s got together to make a short film called three in the afternoon which is about like loose versions of themselves getting real lightsabers randomly out of the blue one day they look like toys but when you turn them on they're actually real and they can kill and like slice through stuff so then it's just like a matter of what do we do with these things now that we have them and of course the first thing that they do because they're you know something 20 somethings they go out to the tennis court and start sparring with them or fighting depending on who you ask and then it just became a thing where they got in touch with a guy named Ryan Weber who did his own viral hit called Ryan versus Dorkman, a lightsaber fight video, which sort of inspired a lot of people to try to do their own, especially because he had his own tutorial on After Effects of how to make lightsabers for free, and anyone could do it, especially back then when you could actually just pay a standard fee for a software, not a monthly subscription. But then that inspired Travis and his friends to do it on their own. And at first they had their own sort of rough rudimentary effects. And then Ryan, once Travis posted it on this website called TheForce.net, Ryan saw the short, liked it, and thought, you know, this would actually be even better if I could fix their lightsabers and make them like movie quality like I'm known for. 
And so they got in touch and he just did it for free and it elevated it. And then once they put it on YouTube, within like a few months, it got millions of views and it was a, a viral hit in its own right, which back in the day, that was considered viral. Nowadays, not so much. That's like standard for YouTubers of certain statures, uh, like on a Tuesday. But back then, it was a big deal. And so that sort of inspired them to, like, the, the reception to it and the, the amount of eyes on it inspired them to make a sequel and it, it sort of expand the story and follow it. And the way that they expand the story is a guy from Hasbro shows up and says, hey, your 30-day playtesting period's up. Give me your lightsabers back. And they're kind of like, well, no, it's mine. I'm not giving it back. I didn't see your name on it. And they're like, well, there was paperwork in the case. They're like, well, I didn't sign it. So now we have to fight over it. Of course, this is me paraphrasing. No one actually says this in the movies. But the dialogue, to Travis's credit, is much better than my uh, my drunk history-esque recounting of it. Uh, but I am sober, for the record. So yeah, that's... and And I... The reason that I made this documentary is because at the end of that second short, Six in the Morning, they tease a third one called Nine in the Evening. And I think me and everyone that watched it, we were like, oh my God, they're going to do another one and it's gonna, the story's going to go even bigger and crazier. I can't wait. And that was 2007. And here we are in 2023. Nine in the Evening <laughs> has not seen the light of day. But I was curious and I wanted to make a documentary just to explore a new type of, of content or filmmaking. And this was just one of the first things that came to my brain. And I reached out to Travis on Twitter just out of the blue. And I was like, Hey, I want to make a retrospective on these two things. Would you be interested to do an interview? And he said, yeah. And then we did a series of interviews. I think over three nights, it ended up totaling like 10 or 11 hours of total footage that I had to comb through. And then he put me in touch with other people like his friends and Ryan Weber and, you know, other ancillary people connected to it. And we, I just interviewed all of them. And slowly over time, Travis was digging up these tapes and, and archival materials that he could send to me and I could put into the movie. And it turned from what was going to be like a 20 to 30 minute, like, you know, nostalgia thing into this full-fledged, like, documentary telling the story of this group of friends and all the stuff they went through to get these movies made. And of course... Travis is the main driving force in that because he's just a natural storyteller, kind of like Kevin Smith. But I would say that his quality of storytelling has endured throughout the years, unlike a certain uh, uh, disappointing filmmaker. So, what? I'm not. I'm throwing shade at Kevin Smith, not you. Thank you. <laughs> I know it, maybe I it's mean, not a high bar. Kevin to Smith start is from. listening. Uh, I, I might even agree with you. I might but yeah, even that's agree the backstory of the doc, and that's how we ended up here today. The movie just premiered five days ago on Saturday, the twenty third, and it's kind of crazy to be able to wake up every day and think, "Oh, I don't have to work on the movie anymore." Thank God. <laughs> but I, re I really am proud of it, and I had a really great time assembling it, even though it was a slow process. I think, like many slow burns, the uh, you know the bang at the end was worth it. You know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you should be proud of it. It's, it was a fantastic doc, thoroughly engaging, I think. The subject matter, I was not familiar with going in, I will admit. I did not know about either of Travis's movies or any of Travis's movies. I didn't know about the Force.net. I didn't know about Ryan Weber, none of that stuff. I, I've, I've watched the Star Wars movies, but I was not aware of that sort of community 
uh, that was kind of like, you know, a little, little more underground, I guess. But yeah, I mean, it, I was, I was telling Greg earlier, like it really makes me want to delve more into it because seeing that now I'm like, oh wow, there's so much to explore. But the, the real big takeaway I think from the doc was that it really inspired me. So I've dabbled in a little bit of filmmaking myself, but it really, you know, kind of made me want to get, get back into it. Cause, um, it's like you kind of forget filmmaking. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. It's a roller coaster, right? Yes. Like it's it's detrimental to your health as much as it is good for your soul, right? Like maybe most art. And I think you guys kind of really covered that in the doc, like the kind of frustrating aspects of it, but then like that kind of cathartic side of it too. And I think you know it's like Travis and you know like you and your friends making this i think it, it it resonated with so many people because like they saw themselves in it and it was like th- this is this is us these guys are representing us right and it's like you don't need like millions of dollars to go into production value to hit that that chord you guys just did it which is amazing and i think it's inspirational man that's a really lovely thing for you to say i really appreciate that jordan um <laughs> Especially having just met you here in this moment we're having right now on your on your podcast in this instant, so that's you know, um, I w- w- want to inspire people with this story and what happened. I've been told repeatedly in these incredibly generous comments that have come flooding back over the, this last week since the documentaries come out, you know people this got people going making movies this got people going in some cases into their careers the tfn scene the fact that this is mentioned in the same breath as that collective that was a that was a crazy thing and there were a few of them around that time there was the dvx user boards there was you know pre youtube there were some pocket filmmaking collectives on the internet and tfn in particular is a is a particularly interesting one because a lot of those people went on to big careers, big projects, and the spirit of of that filmmaking group and that world continues through the lightsaber choreography competition and and through Ryan's work and and a handful of really other incredibly talented and passionate people. I think we I I think the word filmmaker is thrown around because of its utility. I don't see myself that way. I got way inspired to make backyard movies and went really hard at it. And leading up to three, before I moved to Austin, I made like some shorts, made three pretty ambitious like things. And then we went away and then to come back and make three, being inspired by Ryan, being inspired by what was going on on the internet seeing a video and was like, I'm going to put that in my movie. I'm going to put a lightsaber in my movie to get some sort of mechanical advantage to walk into a room that has an audience. We all like lightsabers, right? Here we go. Something relatable, right? Like what if they showed up at your door, right? What if they just fell into your lap? I read my daughter, the Indian in the cupboard a few weeks ago, and it really came flooding back to me how influential that book was in and also, like I say in the documentary, Ghostbusters, where something fantastic is now real and you're just going to have to deal with that 
to pluck that string and to to play with those toys that's that's what I wanted to do and the fact that people connected emotionally with it I think is why we're talking right now why the last two years have been the last 10 years of my life have been so crazy and why I'm really grateful to Greg for deciding to invest his time into telling the story yeah well yeah I mean that's, <laughs> that's your trademark at this point so as a, as a guy who's edited down your long answers Travis I'm used to it so you, you got a good audience. Okay. This gets me into trouble. No. You go now. Yeah, no. I do want to echo kind of what Jordan was saying earlier, which is that, mm. you know, maybe filmmaking isn't the word for it, but there is just sort of that creative urge that I think we all sort of have, at least the three of us and people like us, where, like, it may be a pain in the moment to get it done, but you wouldn't want to be anywhere else doing anything else than right there doing that. You know, after I went to film school, any time that I wasn't on set, I wanted to be on set. You know, even though I know when I'm there, I'm going to be nervous and, you know, manic and running around and doing all this stuff and maybe want to go home the entire time. But the second I get home, I'm like, damn, I wish I was back on set right now because that's just where I feel like I belong. So, I mean, the fact that you were able to sort of experience that with your friends and, of course, working with your friends isn't always the smoothest thing as I think we can all attest to. I think you sort of lucked out in that when it comes to three and six and maybe not what was in between the two, you did sort of things did go pretty smoothly in terms of, you know, balancing the history you have with these people with the practical hardships of production. And I think it's easy to get distracted when you're on set and end up missing things, but you seem to be smart enough and, you, you you have enough experience to where you know all the coverage that you need to get to elevate something above just what's on the page. Like, you're not just shooting everything in a wide shot and calling it quits, like, you know, James Nguyen or something. So, again, I shouldn't stop. I shouldn't be comparing you to, like, the shittiest filmmakers Ooh. on Earth because you really are talented. Oh, come on. I'm a big Ed Wood fan. Thank you for saying so, Greg. I'm a big Ed Wood fan, and so it's my very favorite movie, and... I I don't know what to do with, I mean, you can bring out a half, and I've done it right when I've done gotten to do commercial work, right? You can bring out the half-ton truck, you can bring out the DP, you can bring out the four-man G&E, you can have, you know, the weight I've punched professionally in, in the world of commercials and television. I, I got to play with those toys, but I only really, for me, knew how to use them so effectively because you're absolutely right, Greg. I lucked out with my with my friends. I've been giving it so much thought over the last two weeks because a lot of my obviously a lot of my pain is in the movie that you made, and I don't I don't mince words. I don't hold back. I was ready to talk when you approached me. Your documentary's been out for about a week, and you know it's my phone hasn't been exploding. You know, with with my old group who you know, may have feel that it's shots fired. They may feel that they're, I don't know if they're embarrassed or thrilled. We had a great, you know, a couple of them have reached out. It's risky. Any cooperative activity, in my opinion, on that level is risky. You're asking when you make a film and when you look particular, I think about Howard Hawks a lot in this regard, right? Where when you watch Rio Bravo, you're basically watching one dude's like, 
this is how he thinks women should be. This is how he thinks men should be. This is how he thinks the world should work. This is how he thinks what our responsibilities to one another are. And they're baked into the movie. And I don't have like a Hoxian image for what I think another human being should say or do or think or carry themselves. I brought my friends around. I was like, okay, well, this is your Corey. Because you are Corey. And maybe this Corey is a, a waiter at Chili's. Because you're a waiter at Chili's. And, it, you know, it's like that Eddie Izzard bit. A creeping kid for my film. The creeping kid. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's typecasting because typecasting is so easy, right? And then we get to heighten reality, right? We get to heighten who we are and, and what happens to us. And I wanted to play in that world and, and do that and... In some ways, in the short term, it served those relationships. In some ways, in the long term, it didn't. And you know, it's a that's a tough that's a tough thing to do a cooperative creative activity because you ask someone gen for their time and their generosity and their patience to dance in your show and to be marionetted and to be told what to say and where to stand and what to wear. And are we always so careful with one another? When we do that, I, I don't think so. I think that, that filmmaking in particular is a perilous cooperative activity if we're not careful with one another. Oh, I can attest to how difficult it can be to just get not only your friends to actually take the time to make a thing, like all be in the same place and make a thing in a concerted effort, but also like that aspect of writing characters for them that are versions of themselves. I think most people, if they're not like, in the actor's realm, you know, headspace, I think it can be hard for them to even try to comprehend that without being in, in their own head too much or too outside of their own head to think about how they're being perceived. So it's, it's a tricky line to walk. But I also want to point out that I think I am lucky that you were willing to be so open because I think that when it comes to documentaries, a lot of the time, especially because there's so much like true crime documentaries out there, I think that there's a tendency for, you know, the subjects of these things to almost their, their story to sort of be exploited and not given the, the care or, or you know, the, the level of detail that it needs to really get, do the story justice. And, of course, we didn't really get into every single thing that we could have. There are definitely parts of the documentary that were sanitized just for, A, streamlining the pacing, and, B, you know, Right. It's just this just some stuff you don't need to cover. I mean, at the end of the day, we're making a documentary about lightsabers. We don't need to go into every dark detail of the world. So <laughs> I think I think I, I was lucky right. that you that we were able to sort of maintain this sort of wholesome vibe. Like the fact that the darkest our movie that the doc gets is, you know, the Tyler Dome section when all the friends are having friction and then at the end when you're sort of you know monologuing about your experience with not making nine and how that's sort of affected you going forward up until now. I think that the fact that the movie doesn't go any darker than that is a bonus because I think most document, most times when you say I made a documentary, people assume it's going to be like food ink or something they just don't want to see. Like here's the world and here's how fucked up it is. Unfiltered, raw, uncut bum fights. Yeah, yeah. But then sure. when it comes to this, we are sort of able to maintain this like media 
like it is just about like nostalgia and and friendship and all the stuff that we had Joe Terrell say at the start. Which, by the way, I just want to point out repeatedly. I will continue to point out how amazing it is that Joe Terrell, the guy who did the the, he worked <laughs> with Travis's dad at KLTV, and then Travis asks very politely for him to do the exposition newsman part at the beginning of six in the morning and he said yes and he did it for free and he nailed it the fact that we were able to reach out to him all these years later and say hey we're making a documentary about this would you be willing to lend your voice to this again for free and he said yes the fact that all of that happened and it ended up in the movie and it just sounds so great and it just ties like it just it's perfect i can't i i'm running out of words to describe it i just i love the fact that it happened so much it's a big get and you know KLTV was bought by Gray Television and so you know and in the while my dad was news director it was bought twice over by corporate interests and so as so many you know s- smaller market uh television stations have and so the fact that Joe you know Joe loves these movies and Joe's a fan and Joe is also a, a ham bone right he's a, there's a reason he's on television he's a salty christmas ham and so it's basically like having Clark Kent do the VO in your movie. It's as close to James Earl Jones as we're going to get as far as a really big, you know, fence swinging narrator voice to do, to have in your, in your movie. I was so glad that he did that and he wants to be in, he wants to be in anything we make in the future. So, Hey Joe, thank you for everything. And there were so many happy accidents on your movie and it's a beautiful thing. Like finding that box of tapes and storage that was like, some of the stuff we were missing in the movie that you just oh, found man. and then it just it all perfectly like fleshed out the whole thing. I, I'll keep saying the word perfect because it did seem like, yeah, a lightning in a bottle sort of happy accidents thing for a lot of it. There was a lot of stuff. You know, there was a tape deck that I got access to when I got hired at a job in in Madison, Wisconsin, that if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have been able to capture any of the Sony stuff off my first TV camera. And these are the little things that nobody... I've now brought your podcast to a screaming halt as soon as I said Sony mini DV tape. But, you know, these are things where you... I'm not going to spend three grand on eBay to get a, to get a 20-year-old DV deck. And it's, you know, it's it's amazing. There was a lot of kismet and a lot of really special things. And it gave, I felt comfortable with you, Greg, getting obviously very real about my heartbreak. And, you know, my, my stuff is right under the surface, right? And in my personal life, in most cases, my experience has been that people run away from that, right? They don't, they don't really want to be, a, you know, for the most part, don't come towards it, right? And I think that's true for that's not that's not just true for me, right? And it's it's tough for people in person, as I understand it, to talk about their mental health, to talk about their successes and their failures and what they want. We don't always have a safe space for that. And 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 it's risky to talk about professionally, right? It's not the kind of thing you throw around at work, right? I don't talk about three and six just casually at work. It's something that I have to kind of ease into and discuss carefully, right? And so it's scary, like I said in the video I made before your thing came out, to be vulnerable and available on the internet. And I woke up, particularly this last Monday morning, going, oh shit, having the same feeling that I had so many times before in my life. Have I made a terrible mistake? Did I, did I make a documentary for two years with an awesome person who threw himself into it? Did I... Did I betray myself or somebody? Did I do something wrong? And the answer is no. I'm, 
I'm so thrilled that you have done what you did. I think it's it's told my daughter. My we got halfway through it. My daughter watched the movie. She's eight years old. She turns to me and she goes, "Daddy, you never made nine in the evening. I'll help you make it." Aww. And I, you know, my heart just shatters into a, a million pieces. And I'm like, "My beautiful darling, when I make a movie, you will be in it." And and so. The thing I think I want to say in this moment that I'd like to share with the two of you is like in that in that week since Greg put out this tremendous creative effort that I did lay myself pretty flat to my own peril and the peril of others. The moment I'm in is that I think I may have to create things just to to continue to exist. Right. I have now made a big show about how my friends didn't, you know, or or whatever that didn't work out. Right. So the question floating in the air is, okay, well, then what are you going to make? You're so proud of your three and six thing. You say they're art. You get all choked up when you when one dude called them art. You're going to make some more art. You're going to make some more stuff, buddy. You know, so I'm over here writing. I'm over here. I got a video coming out on Friday that I'm excited about. I made a th- I was up till one in the morning making a thumbnail last night. I haven't done that in four years since I produced WebDM for five years, and my thumbnails were a hit. My thumbnails were freaking awesome for four plus years. I was very, very proud of my awesome thumbnails and to get that blood pumping again, to start to starting to feel my claws, man, my claws are getting sharp, man. And I'm, I, it's, it's good. And so that to be that vulnerable and then to kind of be like, all right, well, do you want that to be the last thing that you ever did on the internet was have a two hour documentary come out about how, you know, heartbroken and disappointed you are, but that you fight your damned hardest. And then, and then we celebrated it on this live stream. I had Greg on my channel. We had this like Yay, right? Look at us. And then I go to bed and I wake up the next morning. It's like, right, but now life after an elegant weapon means that you have to make things. It means that you have to go out and pick up that camera and create something and tell a story. You can't turtle up because there's no more excuses. I'm 42. How much, how much more time you got to make the thing and tell the story you want to tell. Uh, Patton Oswalt wrote a brilliant book uh, called Werewolves and uh, Spaceships and Zombies. It's brilliant. And in the, in the front of it, he's like, everybody has a movie in them. Everybody has like one, at least one movie inside of them, right? And then there's that great quote from Ron Howard. Like, it's, they say anybody can make a movie, and, and they're probably right, right? They ran that as a promo on the Masterclass promos there for a whole, that whole summer during the pandemic. And Ron Howard's right. I think probably everybody can direct a movie. I think I'm living proof. And and uh, I want to go on doing it. And even if it's the weight I want to punch, even if I never break out of a certain professional space or, or weight, I don't fucking care anymore, man. I just I, I like to make stuff and I get to stand on this thing you made and, and go forth in my truth. And I would never have gotten to do that without you, Greg. Well, I think we've cheesed another installment enough that we would have a small mob, a small angry mob gathering to <laughs> to January 6th. Us no, no, here's how here's where we're going to start. We're not teasing. Okay. So let's let's talk about that on your podcast because now everything right. I say I'm going to do sounds like I'm going to do 9 in the evening. <laughs> All right. So here's what I want to be clear. So here's a here's a big here's a big announcement. Friday tomorrow when I got hired here in Madison, Wisconsin, I was here for about six months, and someone in the office started hiding ducks in my office. They started hiding rubber ducks in my office. First there was one duck, next day there was two ducks, next day there was three ducks. And for about a week, I couldn't figure out who was putting ducks in my office. And so, by God, I made a movie about it. I fired up my camera, I got into my 
uh, costume, and I shot an episode of Unsolved Mysteries about how somebody's hiding ducks in my office. And I, I put it in the producer chat here at this production company that I'm working at. You know, and instead of walking around going, which one of you is hiding ducks in my office? I made a movie about this conspiracy <laughs> to hide ducks in my office. And it was the first creative thing in that regard I've made in years and years. And then I hit a camera in my office and, two we- and caught the person <laughs> hiding ducks in my office. And so two weeks later, I put out a second chapter. That, of course, blows the roof off the whole thing. So both of both chapters of it will be on my YouTube channel on Friday. And then after that, I am have begun the process of doing a video on how I was the voice of Schroeder in its spring training, Charlie Brown, which it was the last Bill Melendez, Lee Mendelson, Charlie Brown special and my only IMDb credit other than Ryan versus Dorkman 2. And I've captured it. And I'm going to make a YouTube video on how I was the last Schroeder. And kind of talk about that experience because I've got some weird stories to tell. And so telling stories on my YouTube channel as we beat the drum for another movie-making effort is now my life as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, I just mean that no matter what you do, like even even the content of the documentary was sort of superfluous after a certain point because everyone was just going to keep asking the same question. That The question that I registered a website domain after, where is nine in the evening, you know? That's you talk about how it's always going to follow you around and it will. But at the same time, I think people uh, the general gist I got was that they were just excited to see you again. And, you know, they'll look forward to whatever you put out, even if there's no one's holding a lightsaber in it. So I don't know. I, I, I think we can all get in our own head a lot about expectations, especially once you've got that 15 minutes of fame. Like it would be nice if I could swap the amount of views on my most viewed video in this documentary but realistically, it's not like I had this baked-in audience that I could expect for that to happen because of. So I think it, people that are interested in it will find it. And hopefully, you know, a bit of luck happens and we get more eyes on it in general. But of course, I don't want to overwhelm any of the subjects in the thing again, you know, because there is an aspect of that in the documentary where we just made this thing as friends and then you put it up online and now everyone can see it. It's like how much... How comfortable can you really be with that if it's got thousands and thousands of views? I wanted to say, though, in terms of, like, inspiration, like, I think it's really fascinating what uh, you're talking about, Travis, with, like, getting back into the swing of, like, you know, your own sort of creative endeavors with uh, with your, you know, sort of micro uh, budget or microscopic filmmaking with, like, the rubber duck thing and all that. It kind of sounds like the documentary inspired you as well. And it's a documentary about you, but it inspired you to get back into, you know, kind of chasing that that creative i don't know flame that that you were you were chasing you know when when you made 3 and 6 and i think like you know like we we have to anticipate that this doc is going to like throw fuel on the fire for people wanting to see 9 right but yeah like in terms of 9 and like you know what you can maybe expect of you know i i guess like fans of your previous work uh what their demands might be. I mean, like now that we are in 2023, you know, there's like Kickstarter and GoFundMe and stuff like that. I mean, what do you think? Like, is, is there a possibility that if this documentary kind of like brings up that question to people like, yeah, what about another, another installment in this complete the trilogy? You know, I, I I hadn't seen your films. I want to see nine now. Like this is all happened to me within the past, like, three days (laughs) yeah 
absolutely. Absolutely. It absolutely has inspired me, and it's changed my thinking about what the possibilities are. The response over the last couple of weeks has been really astonishing. And where I'm at in my life professionally, where I'm at in my life creatively, I think I've got a shot at at continuing the story and telling the story. And I've been thinking about it and making notes and rolling this sucker around in my head for years. And especially over the last couple of weeks, there have been some lively breakfasts and some, obviously some big high-flying conversations over here in my brain trust world over here, you know, particularly with my wife, Erin, who is in three and six and herself has published seven YA werewolf novels, the Lone March series, which you can Google, but you know, I've got a writer novelist wife who I'm constantly pitching this to and constantly throwing ideas at and Oh, heavens, did we have a breakfast this week that has just been, like, so much fun. And so, to your point, is crowdfunding, like, an option? I hadn't thought about it seriously or at all in this, in, in this pretty much this entire gap um, now. I think now it's a completely different story. I think now with the scale that you're looking at with the approach that at this point I can elevate or pitch with the talent pool that I have. I'm so lucky in my professional life between Austin, Texas and East Texas and now Madison, Wisconsin and the upper Midwest, you know, living this life of production. If we were to mobilize going into 2024 to continue this story, I'm five or six phone calls away from having a very serious conversation about it, you know, and, and the very thought of it is electrifying. It's just absolutely, absolutely electrifying. And I'm kind of gathering it together, kind of gathering my thoughts together, gathering my approach together. I want to see it too. The, to hear you say that, that you had so much fun watching it and that now you, you want to see the rest of the story, I mean, that's a big deal. It's really all I need to know, right? Like, it's, a, it's crazy. And I'm, just, and I'm so inspired at this, at this point, right? This, and, and I can't stop thinking about the Twin Peaks return, right? That, you know, you have this huge time jump and they are looking back on a missing third chapter. I think that's why they called it the return. It's a misnomer to call it maybe season three because this you're skipping 25 years ahead and all these pieces have moved on the board and all these people are present, which imply one thing has happened and imply that something else happens. And this all this sort of tipping effect happens to Everything you're looking at, you're not being directly, you're not you're not having exposition necessarily directly pointed at you, in really any regard in that case, and that's where I start immediately thinking about RoboCop, and I start immediately thinking about movies where the media and the voice of the media, you know, is really driving the story and giving scope and scale. You know, three and six, six has this. 
threatening speech at the end of it where I give these give a dire warning for the, you know, potentially apocalyptic consequences of these fantasy weapons with their fantastic possibilities entering our lives so suddenly, you know, that's that I can I can hear the Jurassic Park bells ringing, you know, right there, right? It's it's it should not exist. And if you can even take what you're scratching at that it's a licensed fantasy weapon and if you can even start to break that apart and even start to take what this is that this energy and this thing that this thing that's happening that could be used as a weapon is that ball is now in play and now or how are we going to deal with it man i could live there for a while we have a bunch of stories to tell there and I think it's I think it's within the range of possibility now, and I I get chills just thinking about it, just talking about talking to you two about it right now. It's it's crazy. <laughs> I think it's a fantastic idea. Uh, either which way you go about that, but like I really love the idea of uh, jumping ahead in time and seeing this kind of like post apocalyptic uh, view because I think like that you know that there's a really nice little. Um, kind of um, real world parallel that you can make there with like, you know, gun control, right? It's like um, lightsabers are uh, now just, you know, they they were available for consumers and anybody to use, but then the world went to shit because everyone was using lightsabers. It became too dangerous and then they had to become outlawed and then there was contraband and then, you know, like I I feel like there's a whole, like there's something really cool about that, that little area to explore too. And then maybe like, fill in the blanks later with uh, <laughs> going back to chapter three after exploring, you know, this, this aftermath. I think that's a really cool idea. Well, I think what's appealing about that, that time jump too, is that that's sort of like an expansion of six, how it's only a month has passed between, you know, three and six in the timeline, but already they're having to sort of recap what happened that we didn't see with the, with Joe Terrell on the news. And then later in dialogue, like what Corey's been up to, we don't get to see what he's been up to. We only just get to hear bits and pieces of maybe what was going on. So, yeah. No, I mean, Travis explained it better than I could. But I think, you know, there is just a lot that's appealing about it, especially given the stature that it has among this little niche audience that you've carved out. I mean, of course, three million people saw three in the afternoon. But, I mean, at this point in time, only a thousand people have seen the documentary. But... That's still a thousand people, you know? That's not an insignificant a number of people. So the point being that obviously the the goal is not to get from rags to riches and be, you know, an influencer and all this stuff. It's to is to express yourself and if people want to come along for the ride, then that's great. And it would just help things in the long run, but you don't need to go to the Mr. Beast level just to make a thing. Yeah, because I think that's like kind of what you like what your movies have been, Travis. It's like you've you've gathered a group of people that are like-minded enough that they want to see, you know, this idea come to life. But now that it's been shared on the internet and millions of people have seen it, it's like now your your group of peers that are around you, they're like, yeah, this is a good idea. Let's make this movie. It'll be fun. It's just like, it's just magnified. So it's like 
all I mean, there's only like a thousand people have watched the documentary so far, but it's only been online for like five days. The people that do like, like I, I just watched it like yesterday. I'll, I'll donate a hundred bucks to this movie. I don't know anything about you, (laughs) you know, outside of this documentary, but it was inspirational enough. I think you like, you definitely will have support to making this stuff. And I think that if maybe it's like looked at as just an extension of your small group of friends that are all kind of rooting for you, there's like a larger group of friends that are rooting for you, even though you don't know these people personally. So, Well, who's more comfortable with spending their expendable income than Star Wars fans at the end of the day? Totally. I mean, totally. They like. love they love spending their money <laughs> and not getting a return on investment. So, I mean, unless the return on investment is having a wall full of Funko Pops, then maybe. But you know what I mean. I've really enjoyed talking to both. I know you're about to end your show. I've got to use the bathroom. Uh, the I've really let's. This was great, and I'd love to you know visit with you all again. This was so much fun. Well, thank yeah, you. Yeah, that was a blast. Travis. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. I gotta, I gotta go. I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> you guys. go, you I, go. I love you both. But I gotta go. I love you too, Travis. All right. Well, that's gonna do it for episode four. It's kind of funny. That's the kind of the same way that episode three ended. That's but you true. You have to go to the bathroom, yeah. Greg. This should be like a running thing. Like we always just end the cast. A running someone has to go gag, to the bath. You might say. Oh, because <laughs> because I had the runs. Like um. All right. <laughs> Well, Jordan, I am looking forward to seeing other people's reactions to your album. And I hope that, you know, I get to continue making documentaries. And I hope that I'm fortunate enough in the future to get to tell stories as unique and as inspiring as Travis and his friend's story. Because ultimately, that's what is keeping me going is just getting to fully illustrate a story through the audiovisual medium. So... Well, I think you're proving yourself as a as a very, you know, proficient and like a very talented young filmmaker. And I think like this this is this is just gonna work wonders for you and you know your portfolio. Um, I, I thought it was really good. It is my portfolio at this point. <laughs> well, it's a great portfolio then, because uh, yeah, I think I saw some of the comments on there, like. Greg's out here making Netflix uh, st- like level docs for free on YouTube. Oh, that's that's my best like, friend yeah. Cameron. It's, uh, of course, he's gonna light me up like that. <laughs> of course, I appreciate. But he's it. not wrong. Like, yeah. he's not wrong. It's a uh, very very good quality stuff, and uh, yeah, it's um, it feels very pro. As a bit of a footnote to this episode, for those of you that enjoyed Travis's presence and the way that he explains things. Everyone keep an eye out on Netflix sometime within the next year for a documentary about a man named Barry Cooper because you might just get another Travis appearance. I can't tell you when it's coming out or what it's going to be called, but he's done an interview. It's going to happen. It's going to be out there in some form. So that is not the last document. My documentary is not the last documentary that you will see Travis in in the future. No, I Googled it the other day. It's it's in the trades that never get busted. Comes out spring 2024. It's four episodes, and I'm heavy in the first one, is what I'm told. That's great. Nice. Never get busted. Oh, so they, they're naming the series after the, the DVD you put out. That This is a whole rabbit hole. We might talk about it in the future. Brother man, 
we have just begun to scratch how surreal this is all about to get. The fact that there is a thing called Dare. I, I made a documentary 20 years ago called, no, 15 years ago, right around the time we were making six called Never Get Busted. And a Netflix documentary of the same name is coming around. And that's weird, man. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird that <laughs> there were two awesome. documentaries in production at the same time that feature you and, and things you created in the past. There's like a very strange, like cosmic parallel with that. It really was bizarre, man. It was because it happened during our thing that I heard about this documentary was being made and I was encouraged to reach out and I, I made like a video for the producers. I was like, I, I shot this thing you're making a documentary on. I've took an assumed name, but I've got tapes. I've got everything. You should call me. And they did. And they flew up from Australia and flew a DP in from New York and came to my house the day before I moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and they set up a softbox so big it barely fit in the room, and they put two cameras on me, and buddy, you know they talked to me all day about the documentary I made in 2007 or eight, and so I can't wait for everybody to see that. I, and I'm, I, I thought I was nervous about an elegant weapon. I, now I'm nervous all over again about that. Well, it's gonna be you definitely have a lot less to put out there. And by the way, speaking of that video, I think – as you get closer to that, or maybe after it comes out, you should put that up for people to see. Because I think it's a very entertaining video, and it is your sort of version of the, or it's the Never Get Busted version of your, you know, video that you put out before my doc. Basic, like your Where Is Nine in the Evening video. That's what it was called. So That's that's true. I really want to put it out. I did make a really in fun video. I will show yeah. it to And people. I'll even send Thank Jordan you, the link just so he doesn't have to wallow in curiosity. Yes, please. Please do. All right, so I'll send I'll send Jordan that. Jordan, you send me videotapes. God damn it, the album, yes. not literally. <laughs> don't send me VHSs. I mean, you can if you want, I but I don't send know you what a bunch. Would be. I'm gonna send you a bunch of mini DV tapes. Okay, sweet. Or you could just scan them oh, and good. send them over Dropbox <laughs> or whatever ends up working out. Help you. With All right. That. <laughs> Thank you, Travis. Jordan, I always appreciate you. Everyone who's listening, all five of you. Thank you. <laughs> We appreciate you, and we'll see you next month to talk about the Animal Collective album and whatever movie we end up picking we haven't decided yet, but we will by the time that comes around. So You'll see when the episode comes out. Thank you, and have a good one. Thanks, guys.